So this morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish out uh, that chapter in the book of Galatians. And let me ask you to take your scriptures out and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 23 and uh, go all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 29. But this morning I want to share a little, um, take a second and share a little bit about myself that you may not know about me. Uh, Maybe you do, maybe you've heard me share this before, but when I was in middle school, I was not a believer in Jesus Christ. I was not a Christian. In fact, I was actually a pretty rebellious young man. And uh, there's someone who's sitting in the back row back there who can uh, substantiate that reality. Um, I uh, um, was, was plenty smart enough, but I didn't like school too much. Um, I always passed and, and did well on my standardized tests, and, you know, I always scored high, and uh, we would get standardized tests back in those days, and, and the results would come home, and my report card would come home, and, you know, mom and dad would look at those, and they would go, what's wrong with this picture? Um, and what was wrong with the picture was something that was inside me, okay, and that's the honest truth. I hated to do homework. Absolutely, in the eighth grade, I hated homework so much that my first class at eight o'clock was math. And for math class, we were supposed to bring our homework every week, every day of the week, and we were supposed to turn it in to the teacher, Mr. Durego. Mr. Durego uh, would collect all of our homework, and he would check us off in his little uh, roll book thing uh, that we had turned in our homework. And those of us who had chosen not to do our homework were to meet him in the hallway. Because when I went to school, the teacher could uh, have you go out to the hallway and uh, he would bring out a wooden implement, and he would say to you, Richard, bend over and hold your ankles. And I would receive three solid licks from Mr. Durego every day. I did not do homework. I had an English class after lunch. I didn't do English homework either. Now, I didn't get licks in English, but you know, after a year of zeros on your homework assignment, your final grade's not going to be too hot. Eighth grade, I, I failed math and English. Put yourself in my parents' shoes for just a minute. What would you do if, that, if I were your son? Well, Dad was persuaded that I should go to military academy. I think mom wasn't 100% behind the idea, but dad won. I went to Chamberlain Hunt Military Academy and um, uh, for, the, for summer school to make up those classes, and, um, and, and it, was, it was a good experience for me, I, I will tell you that. Uh, dad insisted, mom resisted. I went to Chamberlain Hunt. Chamberlain Hunt Military Academy is in Port Gibson, Mississippi. It is south of Natchez, and it's right on the Mississippi River. In fact, the Presbyterian Church there is the famous church from the Civil War that has the golden hand pointing to heaven. 
And when Grant made his, his march through uh, Mississippi, he did not burn that church because of the golden hand pointing to heaven, because it was just so unique. Uh, so it was, a, it was a civil war. You know, they have the uh, antebellum homes and all of that kind of thing. I went kicking and screaming to military academy. Uh, I, I was so angry at mom and dad that I would have spit nails. I really was. I couldn't believe it. I, I was shocked. I live in a dormitory. There were other guys my age living in the dormitory. Uh, some, men, some of those guys there were there because a judge had sent them. Uh, they were coming out of New Orleans. They were coming uh, from all across Mississippi. Uh, some of them were there like me because they were rebellious young men. Um, but uh, there we were. School in the morning. First thing in the morning, we'd do, we'd, we would line up outside the mess hall for breakfast, and uh, we would have breakfast, and we had like 22 minutes for breakfast, and then off to class. And then we were in class for the, you know, allotted amount of time, and then lunch, and then after lunch, they uh, regimented that we all had to take rest time. Well, now, middle school boys, okay? Think about middle school boys and rest, okay? They had guys who, who monitored the hallways, who walked up and down the hallways to be sure that we were in our bunks and that we were where we were supposed to be. And uh, that was the way life was. It was regimented. It was structured. Uh, we had P.E. after uh, the uh, afternoon rest time. Uh, and I thrived in that environment. I loved the structure. I loved, the, I loved what it did for in the evenings, they did bed checks to be sure that we were in our beds where we were supposed to be. They inspected our rooms. We, our, we had military standards for which our beds had to be made, for which our gear had to be stowed. It was the whole, it was the real deal. It was just the real deal. The discipline was good. I was actually a straight-A student. We had, we had enforced study hall in the evenings. After supper, we had to go to study hall for two hours, I think. And when I say enforced, I mean like for every three guys, there was a monitor standing behind them, being sure that they were at least looking at their book, you know, working on their assignments and that kind of thing. The rules and the structures of the military academy were a great pedagogue. They, they taught me some, some valuable things. Now, the truth is, I'm a sinner, and I was a non-believer then, and I broke some of the rules. I'm not going to tell you about going AWOL. I'm not going to tell you about some of the other trouble I got into there, and Mom still doesn't know those stories, and she's not going to. <laughs> when I had to leave Chamberlain Hunt, I was crushed. Broke my heart. I wanted to stay. I love the, the structure, the pedagogy of the military school. I share that with you today because the Apostle Paul is using the language of a military academy here in the text that we're going to look at. He, he's, he's describing the role of the Old Testament law in the life of Israel, in the life of the Jewish people, with the same kind of, of military um, uh, uh, academy kind of pedagogy here. The law for Israel was what Chamberlain Hunt was for me in so many ways. Oh, listen, I didn't tell you. They marched us to church on Sunday morning. If you were Catholic, they marched you to the Catholic church. If you were Presbyterian, they marched, they marched you to the Presbyterian church or Baptist or Methodist or whatever, okay? And we went in single file. We had someone who was in charge to be sure we got there and someone who was in charge to be sure we got back. The Old Testament law 
was for Israel what Chamberlain Hunt was for me. It was, it was a military academy. It was a stern friend. It, it was a, a friend who wouldn't let, let me escape to the phantom, to the false, uh, futile freedom um, that holds us under lock and key until the right time. The law is something that exposes and expands our sin that tempts us to, to gain the Lord's acceptance by law-keeping. It, it points out to us the, the fallacy of that idea. As long as we remain captive to the law, Paul says, sin reigns. Let that sink in. Let that idea take root in your heart. You know, Paul uses the words that are, that, are, that, are, that are conclusive. He says, you're a captive, you're imprisoned, in verses 22 and 23 of the text. This is not... This is not like the law is some kind of lighthearted spiritual songs like kumbaya, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, there's no deluded sense of autonomy and, and that, that we would choose for God. The song that the law sings is the song you know, of an unforgiving jailer who, who only knows bad to the bone. You know, it, it, is, it, is, a, it is a song that talks of the law being our custodian of the law being our guardian, our schoolmaster, our tutor. I love the way the Jerusalem Bible translates verse 23 of our text, or 24 of our text, because it fits the context. The Jerusalem Bible, different from the ESV, says, so, that the, so the law was serving as a slave to look after us and to lead us to Christ so that we could be justified by faith. The actual Greek word that's translated slave there is the word pediagogos, gogos, pediagogos, the Greek word. It's the word we get pedagogue from. The law is like a schoolmaster or a tutor. It doesn't normally get translated slave, but let me see if I can tell you why the Jerusalem Bible did that. Before we, We're going to read the text in just a moment, but before we do that, let me introduce this idea to you. I think the idea of slave in verse 24 unpacks the cultural assumptions. You see what happened in well-to-do households in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Paul's world in his day, was that uh, the, the, the household would hire a slave who was the pedagogus, okay? He was the one who was the pedagogue, who would be in charge of a boy from the age of 6 to about 16. And while he had some oversight of the basic education of the child, the, the pedagogue was essentially the child's guardian, the pedagogue was the one who would feed him, he would dress him, he would chaperone uh, him to school, he would carry his supplies, he would wait for him, uh, he would bring him home, he would have him recite his lessons, he was the boy's disciplinarian, he would, he would rule over every aspect of his life, chiding, uh, correcting, scolding, uh, keeping him within strict limits. Uh, he was the disciplinarian. The child was virtually a slave to the slave. That's the reason the Jerusalem Bible sa says instead of translating pedagogue or, or guardian or schoolmaster or tutor or custodian, 
uses the word slave there. The defining feature of life under the, the pedagogue was regimentation, which created an understandable thirst for freedom. You know, when you're 16, you don't long for a watcher. You long for a motorcycle, right? I mean, let's just be true. I mean, let's just be honest. You don't want someone who's just minding you, who's, who's watching you. You want your freedom. I read uh, uh, the Greek historian and philosopher Xenophon uh, wrote this. He said, when a boy ceases to be a child and begins to be a lad, others release him from his pedagogue and from his teacher. He is then no longer under them, but is allowed to go his own way. You see, that's what the gospel has brought. The gospel has brought to us freedom from the pedagogy of the law. That's an important principle that Paul learned and that he wants the Galatians to learn as well. Let's read the text. Enough introduction. Let's read the text. Let's dig into the scriptures. Let's let the Holy Spirit take the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God and use it for its holy and perfect purposes today in our lives. This is Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian and our slave until christ came in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian for in christ jesus you are all sons of god through faith for as many of you as were baptized into christ have put on christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you today that Christ might increase in our midst that we would understand what he has done as he has taken us out from under the tutor of the law and placed us into his grace. Would you help the scriptures by your Holy Spirit to, to enlighten our hearts, to, to open our minds and our eyes and our behaviors, to live as those who have been saved by grace through faith alone. Oh, Lord, one of our idols is to be good law keepers. I pray that you would help us to learn what it means to be those who live in grace. In Jesus' name I ask it, amen. So my first point this morning is, is really the pedagogy of the law. If you've been here, if you've been listening to the sermons that David and I have been preaching online, if you've uh, been keeping up with us over the last several weeks, and you know that we've been looking at the role of the law of God, the role of the Old Testament law uh, for the last several weeks, many weeks. And, and David and I are anxious that, that we as a church understand the, the, the role of the law in our lives. 
I am not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that we would do away with the Old Testament law. I think the Old Testament law is critical to understanding our need for grace. I think that's his whole point. I think that's the point that Israel wasn't getting, that actually Paul wasn't getting until he met Jesus. We've been working on that. The Bible teaches that the law exposes, that it provokes sin, that, that it condemns sin, Sin. The purpose of the law uh, is, is, is like lifting the lid off of our respectability. It, it discloses what's really underneath. You know, it, 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 it disrobes us so that we are seen for who we are. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under God's judgment, helpless to to save ourselves or to do anything to merit our salvation the law is 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 given to us to reveal that so that we understand that about ourselves and the law i think needs to still be allowed to do its job to do its god-given duty one of the great faults of the contemporary church i believe is the contemporary church's failure or tendency, maybe I should say, the, the church's tendency to kind of soft sell uh, the, the, the idea of sin and judgment. You know, there are a lot of places you can go that open the word, but they won't talk about sin and judgment. False prophets like uh, um, Jeremiah talks about, he says, false prophets who heal the wound of God's people lightly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you ever read Bonhoeffer's biography, by the way? If you've not read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography by Eric McTaxis, you need to do it. You need, you need to order it on Amazon. I don't care if you do it right now on our Wi-Fi, okay? You need to read that book. Well, just a quote from Bonhoeffer. Uh, it's a book, by the way, it's a book that I read about every two years, okay? It's just that good. I don't even watch TV shows twice, okay? But I'll reread Bonhoeffer's biography. At any rate, let me give you a quote. It's only when one submits to the law that one can speak of grace. I don't think it is Christian to want to get to the New Testament too soon and too directly. Bonhoeffer. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To, to, to do that is to contradict God's plan of redemption and salvation history. John Stott put it like this, and, and I've got a longer quote from Stott. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint. Stott says this. He says, Is this not why the gospel is unappreciated today? Some ignore it, the, speaking of the law. Others ridicule it. So in our modern evangelism, we cast our pearls, the costliest pearl of the gospel, before swine. People cannot see the beauty of the pearl because they have no conception of the filthy pigsty. No man ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed it to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. And he continues, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and kill us, killed us will we call upon Christ 
for justification in life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. <laughs> I love Stott's descriptions and ideas and, and his, his metaphors here. We need to let the law have its role in our lives and let it lay its finger on the wickedness of our hearts so that we see our need for grace and our need for a Savior. I had a Damascus Road conversion when I was a teenager. I came to Christ as a senior in high school, and, and it was a dramatic turnaround for me, and it was because literally God laid his finger through the law on the sin of my life. Now, I didn't understand that when it happened. I didn't understand the, all that was going on. But you know what? I knew that God had, had spoken to me about my need for a Savior. There was no doubt in my mind. The truth of the matter is, we're, we're not the only ones who struggle with the place of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, the case law that, that God has given us. It, it was true in the New Testament days. It was true in Galatia. It was true in Galatia because of the struggles that the or, uh, Gentile Christians were having with the Judaizers who were, who were Jewish believers, who were trusting in Christ, and who were wanting to apply the Old Testament law to these new Gentile believers who were just coming in, you know, these, these interlopers who were just coming into the church, and they wanted to apply uh, the Ten Commandments to them. They wanted to apply the, the laws to them. And so Paul wrote this letter that we're studying today because the church needed it then. And the church needs it today. The book of Galatians is what started the Protestant Revol uh, Reformation. You do realize that, don't you? It's just, it's just the whole idea that we are justified by grace through faith alone. Last week we looked at 15 to 25 and... Um, we looked at, at the Judaizers and how they wanted us to, Gentile Christians, to live uh, as Jewish Christians. And, and they, were, uh, uh, they, were, they were trying to exalt the Mosaic law over the promise that God made to Abraham. And Paul says, no, that doesn't work. The promise was made to Abraham 430 years before. And, and the promise of Messiah, offspring, and all of that that's tied up in that. I could re-preach that one, but I won't. The law. The argument Paul makes is that the law is, is subsequent to the Abrahamic promise. That law does not lead to life. So if law doesn't lead to life, what's its purpose? I think its purpose was for a particularly limited time. And it is to imprison, to help God's people uh, understand the reality of our inability and of our sin. I think its role is active today. I think the second purpose is, is it provides a guardian for us. It gives us some parameters in which to live. It helps us to know what is good and what is right, what is holy and what pleases the Lord. Paul wants the Galatians to understand the requirements of the law that imprisoned past generations in guilt and guided them away from self-trust so that they were lean. Uh, leading them to faith in Christ. You see, faith in Jesus would not emulate the moral requirements of the law. 
Faith in Christ grants freedom from the condemnation. Faith in Christ gives hope for life to those who have become aware of their inability to keep its standards. It's interesting to me, Paul knew what it was like to be imprisoned by the law. You realize that? You know Paul's testimony, don't you? You know know who he was. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was, you know, the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was zealous for the Lord and and for uh, the Old Testament and and for his heritage as a Jewish leader in his community. And he was imprisoned by the law. It was at the Damascus Road where Paul, who had been under the law, was enforcing the law, was glorifying the law in his life, and seemed to have no conviction over his sin. What did Paul do? He was murdering Christians. He stood by and watched Stephen stone. Do you know what a stoning looks like? you know what that looks like? Let me give you a quick description of what a stoning is like. Apparently, they would bury the victim, I'm going to call him, in the sand up to his shoulders so that he can't get free. And they would pick up rocks. Now, they were very careful about the kind of rocks that they used to stone the the victim with. They weren't to be too big and too heavy so as to crush him into death. And they weren't to be too small so to just be a pebble bouncing off of him. But they had to be of a right size. And then they would pummel that victim to death. Slowly, agonizingly, killing that man that's what a stoning was paul stood by and watched stephen be stoned to death they laid their coats at paul's feet paul was still under the law at that point in his life it was when jesus came to paul on the damascus road and 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 jesus says to paul why do you kick against the goads why are you Why are you kicking against God's prodding in your life? Why do you persecute me? That Paul met Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus coming to Paul in that way, out of his terrible blindness, out of his self-righteousness, heaped burning coals on Paul's head. Paul trusted Christ. He was, he was confronted. He was convicted of his sin. And he, he understood that his, the love he received was undeserved, unwarranted. You know, lots of um, chemical reactions when you're, um, well, just in life. But, but chemical reactions require a catalyst, don't they? You know, sometimes it takes another chemical to start another reaction, to start something. It's like the uh, Mentos in the Coke bottle. That's really what that is. You understand that, don't you? Don't go doing that at home, teenagers, okay? Um, Those things will blow up pretty good. Um, Christ catalyzes the law in our experience, and that's the point I'm trying to make. Christ is the one who, who, who makes the reaction take place. He crystallizes all our failures, all of our sin, all of our transgressions uh, in the, by the impact of his presence. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to, to, to consider and see ourselves as we really are. The light of Christ shines uh, into our hearts. He shines his glory. But the law, without the living word or the life-giving spirit, just remains a dead letter until the catalyst, Jesus, is brought into the picture. Until that catalytic uh, encounter with Jesus Christ. John Newton put it this way, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace those fears relieved." I think Paul said it this way, "'The goodness and kindness of God is the catalyst, leads to repentance.'" It was a ground-shifting experience for Paul, wasn't it? It was a ground-shifting experience for me, I will tell you that. When I encountered Christ and understood for the first time the reality of my sin and the reality of my inability to do anything to make my sin right before God and to give myself any kind of standing before God whatsoever, Paul came to see that he didn't get God's will done by preaching the law and by reinforcing it with harsh and deadly punishments, but by preaching Christ and him crucified. The gospel as it's preached, the law's dreadful work is brought to full completion. It's finished when the gospel is preached. It reveals to us that we've been slaves under, under a slave until the date set by our Father that our pedagogy is finished. Well, let's talk about what it means to be a true son, true sonship. Let's talk about that for just a minute, because that's really here a major part of our text. Remember what the Judaizers are saying here. The Judaizers, since they were Jews, had always thought of themselves as God's only children. They're God's special people. They're God's chosen race, his, his royal priesthood. And so they treated the Gentile Christians who were coming to faith in Christ kind of like second-rate members. You know, they, they weren't siblings so much as they were cousins. You know, they're, they're, they're okay, but they're not 100% us. You know, they're part of the family, but they're not our family. You know, what, you know how, I don't know, maybe your family tree is just uh, like a telephone pole. It doesn't have a lot of branches in it. Um, I hope that's not true. But the Jews saw themselves as kind of like that telephone pole. And if you're not one of us, you're not part of the family. Paul responded to the things that the Judaizers were teaching by welcoming Gentiles into the full embrace of God's family. There's a, there's a little three-letter word in verse 26 that you ought to circle if you've got your own Bible. You can circle in the Pew Bible, too, if you want to. But, but look at verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul's emphasis, actually the word all in the Greek is in the, is the, in the first position, showing you that it's being emphasized, it's emphatic. Jews and Gentiles, all, all of us are sons of God through faith the gospel is for gentiles as much as it is for jew and the privilege of sonship is for all of god's children i'm not talking about fatherhood of god brotherhood of man and all that liberal uh hoo-ha 
I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. The way someone becomes a member of God's family is actually by legal adoption. You've been adopted into God's family. The the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines adoption this way. The question is, what is adoption? Hard one to remember. The answer is this. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Did you hear what it says? We have been received into the number. We have a right to call all the privileges of the Son of God, our, of, of the sons of God, our own. Legally speaking, an adopted child is a true son or daughter. He or she has the same rights as a natural-born child. Absolutely, the same rights. There's someone to call father. There's someone to care for every need. There's somebody to, to, to give fatherly affection and discipline. In addition, the adopted child receives the child's full share of the family inheritance. The Christian gains all those rights, all those privileges when we are adopted, when we become a child of God. We have someone to call father. Remember what Jesus said? We pray Our Father in heaven, Abba, Father, we have that right. There's someone to care for us. Our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need. He loves us with tender affection. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, marveled the Apostle John. He said that that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Our Father loves us so much that He refuses to let us go our own way, too. He disciplines. He makes us holy. He sends us to military academy. He loves us. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? Hebrews 12, 7. Best of all, God's promised his children a full share in his infinite and eternal inheritance. We are God's children. Paul reasoned that with the Romans, he says, then we're heirs. If we're God's children, then we're heirs. We have inheritance right. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17. A good father gives everything. He is everything that he has to his children. God has given us the best. He is the best. He is the good father. There's no higher status. There's there's no better place. There's nothing that we could achieve better than to be called the child, the son or the daughter of the living God, of the most high God. The way to gain that high status, Paul says over and over again, we've said over and over again from the pulpit, is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not by what you do. It's not even by your ability to put your faith in Jesus. It's just by simply resting in Christ alone for salvation. Throughout Paul's letter to the Galatian church, he's argued that blessings come only by faith. 
He said over and over again that justification is by faith, that union with Christ is by faith, that the blessing of Abraham uh, comes by faith, that the promise of the Holy Spirit is received by faith, that everything that God has to offer comes by faith, and adoption is no exception. Our adoption into God's family is received by faith. In the words of the Apostle Paul or John, he said, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Adoption really shows the contrast between faith and works in a most vivid way, I think. You'll never work your way into the kingdom. Just like you could never work your way into a family, can you? You know... You could have someone who, who serves your family, who, who works for your family for years and years and years, cooking and cleaning and doing laundry and taking care of the children and picking them up from school and delivering them or whatever and doing all those things, but they are a hireling. They are someone that, that, they're an employee. They are someone that you have brought into your home, but they are not a family member. They don't have the inheritance. They don't have the same rights. The highest position that they could receive is, is to be a household employee, a household servant of some kind, even if they do that for decades. When it comes to God's family, the Father has willingly adopted anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. He's engrafted you. You didn't earn it. He's, he's pulled you in because he loves you. The last part of the text, Paul talks about, and I've used the, the heading baptized into Christ for the, for the last part of this text. He, he basically has said that, that as we are adopted, our whole identity is bound up in Jesus. No more with ourselves, but with Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 27. You see, in the New Testament, baptism stands for, for an inseparable series of complex uh, events that, that take place in our lives. The outward act of baptism expresses a one-time faith. The outward act of baptism shows that, that not only do we have faith or trust in Jesus Christ, but shows that we've been incorporated into him we've we've become a part of the family we are sharing in his death and in his resurrection we are washing and uh, being washed and renewed by the work of the holy spirit we have a new alliance we have a new allegiance we have a new membership we are in a new position we have been a part made a part of the covenant community we have been anointed with the holy spirit all of that is merely a testimony of what? It's a testimony of God's grace in our heart. You know what I long for, New Hope? I long to do more baptisms. I long to see conversion growth. My prayer for New Hope is that we will grow by conversion growth. We need to be busy about leading others to faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has done everything for us. He's done it all. 
What, what, what is there that he's not done for us? Sons are free from condemnation. We're free from the need to condemn. Paul knew how God was as creator and judge. He knew God as in, in that way as creator and judge. And, and Paul ran out to do his duty day after day after day, murdering. He was trying to be faithful, rallying to the law. But when he knew Christ as his father, when the relationship changed from creator and judge to a father who freely forgives and justifies, fear was removed. Paul's motivations for service were changed. And we're transformed too. We've moved from being under the pedagogy of the law to living by grace. Hates turned to love. Our response to the good news of the gospel, our response to the word of God is not, I've got a list of more things to do, more commandments to keep, more laws that I've broken. It's not that, but it's that I want to live a holy life because I want to live to the praise and glory of God because of what he's done for me in loving me and calling me to himself. Our motivations have changed. Our reasons for life have changed because of that. By the way, when Paul's talking about sons and, and we become sons and that kind of thing, he's not being insensitive by not, by not including uh, sons and daughters at this point in his, his language. You know, that's our American eyes reading into the text, I think, here. I think Paul's actually making a sensitive theological point. You see, in the ancient world where Paul lived, women were thought of as less than a person. Women were thought of as property and uh, uh, they couldn't give legal testimony, they couldn't inherit property or that kind of thing. And so Paul is basically blowing access to God's inheritance wide open by saying there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither f male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, verse 28. He's doing that deliberately. Distinctions of race, of rank, of gender are torn down in God's family. They're removed. Sure, differences remain in terms of functional ones. You know, functional realities are that, that men are called to lead in the church of Jesus Christ. That's just a reality in the Word of God. But there is no distinction in terms of our... We're equal heirs of the Father's inheritance. In terms of status, everyone before Christ is like a son. There's a special privilege in being a free Jewish male. And there's no less honor in being a female or a slave or anything else. Believing sons are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. And we're blessed with every spiritual blessing that belongs to Christ. You know, we aren't yet the sons that we're supposed to be. As sons in Christ, we're in the perfect place. Jesus' inheritance is unassailably yours and mine. In due course, we'll be conformed into his image. We'll look like him. Does that mean that our physical Look is going to be his? No. But we'll be like him. That's the blessing that God promised to the nations through Abraham. 
That's the blessing of the covenant promise. You see, that's why we can say to you that the Bible has one story. That's why we can say to you that the covenant of grace started in the book of Genesis and it extends all the way through to the closing words of Revelation. One story. God creating worshipers for himself who are his sons adopted and given a great biography. Let me pray. Father, I pray this morning that as we think about our sonship in Jesus Christ, that you would help us to understand all that you have done for us in redeeming us, that you have loved us since before the foundation of the world, that you have provided everything that we need that we might be redeemed, that you have called us, that you have set your love upon us, that you have filled us with your spirit, that you will carry us all the way to the very end, that there is nothing that can snatch us out of your hand, there is nothing that can separate us from your love, and that one day we will stand in your presence, robed in the righteousness of Jesus and looking in character like him. Father, the plan of redemption is huge. It is overwhelming. Help us to understand the law's role as a pedagogue. And help us to understand the freedom and the grace that the gospel brings to our lives as adults in Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.